0: Welcome to Christian Curious with Dr. Haley Scott of Denver Seminary. What are the challenges we face in today's church and culture in a postmodern, post-Christian era? Dr. Haley believes that in addressing those issues, the church must adopt a missional mindset. Christianity does hold the answers to the big questions of today's culture. Let's join Dr. Haley for today's edition of Christian Curious. On May 25,
1: 2020, George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, was killed during an arrest for allegedly using a counterfeit bill. Derek Chauvin, a white police officer, knelt on Floyd's neck for nearly 10 minutes, despite initial pleas from Floyd that he could not breathe. The officer's knee remained on Floyd's neck for 3 minutes and 46 seconds after Floyd fell unconscious. His death led to more than 2,000 demonstrations and protests in cities across America. This is Christian Curious with Dr. Haley. The protests stoked by the death of George Floyd are the most recent chapter in a long history of blacks advocating for equal treatment under the law. The first recorded revolt occurred in 1663 in Gloucester, Virginia, when black slaves and white with black slaves and white indentured servants. The first all-black revolt occurred in Virginia in 1687, 57 years after the first slaves were imported to Virginia. In 1832, French aristocrat Alexis de Tocqueville came to America to study America in its infancy. He believed that by observing the nation in its infancy would help Europeans understand the country and its possible future. Of slaves and white Europeans, he wrote, I do not imagine that white and black races will ever live in any country on equal footing, but I believe the difficulty will be greater in the United States than elsewhere. Joining me again today is Dr. Douglas Groteis, professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary. Dr. Groteis received a PhD and a BS from the University of Oregon and an MA in philosophy from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Welcome back to Christian Curious, Dr. Groteis.
2: Thank you for having me, Haley.
1: Dr. Grotheis, I watched the video of the death of George Floyd. I didn't want to, as it's deeply unsettling and it's heartbreaking, but I made myself because I wanted to honor and acknowledge the wrong that was done to him. And and as in every case that comes to light regarding the clashes between blacks and police officers, some have dismissed this instance or even worse, they've justified it. Why do you think people tend to dismiss or turn a blind eye to the injustice that blacks face in America?
2: Well, it's always easier to avoid a problem and pretend it's not there than to face it. And I think in this case, people may feel uh, powerless. Some do. Well, what can we do? right and there's so many there are so many different responses the first response is to try to really get to the bottom of what is happening in america with respect to race and you can see a video that's horrific and triggers outrage around the country even around the world because it becomes a symbol an emblem you think of a, a white police officer with his knee on the neck of a black man killing him. There's nothing more pictorially profound than that to indicate racial problems in the United States. But we need to ask questions because Christians should be concerned about justice and love. And so uh, what exactly is the situation with police and how they treat racial minorities? Is this something that is just uh, an epidemic of abuse? Is it here and there? And in light of how bad it is, and there are injustices, then what's the proper response to it? So it's very easy to be incensed by an image, and it's an image of something that really happened. It's another thing to do the hard work of asking about the status of policing in the United States with respect to racial minorities. And it's very easy to simply be outraged. We live in an outrage culture.
1: Right. And absolutely. then to,
2: you know, join a movement and adopt slogans and then demand that everybody adopt the same slogans that you do. But the work of a real love and justice is tougher than that.
1: Well, you know, I have, uh, Read before, and I have pondered for a long time that, in um, like medieval times, all the way up until the uh, the Enlightenment, the authority and truth was located and embodied in the church, in God, in religion, in whatever religion that might be. And then, whenever um, the Enlightenment happened, beginning with the philosophers in France. Uh, People like Voltaire, um, the truth became based in science until about the time of World War II when people said, oh, well, science didn't lead to this utopia that it promised. It ended here, which led us into an era of postmodernism. And now experts are saying we live in post-postmodernism where there is no truth, but um, truth may be truth one author argued that truth is actually oriented and centered in what he call, what he called the mob and what he called groups of people that that actively you know go for a single thing and so whenever we're looking at these protests and we look at this one image and we have that that visceral reaction to the image you know, are we necessarily grounding our reactions in truth, truth, or the, the truth of the crowd, or the, the, re, the emotions of the crowd, I should say?
2: What is truth, and then what statements are true, and what statements are false, and then how ought we respond to it? And uh, the postmodern approach, and I guess post, postmodern approach, is that there is no objective truth out there. The truth is a matter of perception and opinion. And getting to the bottom of the matter and finding out what the facts are on the ground is not as important as outrage and protest. But if your social action is not based on reality, then you can't expect it to be virtuous. You can't expect it to ameliorate problems at all. And discerning truth is a deliberative process that requires a cool head and a warm heart and some time to study and then to have the courage of your convictions to act out what in fact is the case. And uh, Americans, especially today, tend to be extremely impatient. There was a protest in Denver, where I live most of the time, where some people stormed into a, a meeting. I think it was a city council meeting or something like that, and one woman just grabbed the microphone and said, you're not doing enough, you're not doing enough, you're not doing enough, and unless you do, we're going to tear everything down. Well, that's the spirit of 1789. That's the spirit of the French Revolution
1: Mm -hmm.
2: and of the terror. That's not the spirit of 1776, which is to reform and to be a responsible citizen. And to use the agencies and methods of the civil government to bring lasting change. Uh, I see a lot of nihilism, actually, in these protests. It's about destruction and demands, and uh, violence speaks louder than words. But that's not the basis of reform. And that doesn't help African Americans.
1: So, why do you that think that there... white do you... Americans? Why do you think they're nihilistic um what is happening in the lives of these people that cause them uh, cause this type of reaction?
2: Well, I think with some people, it's a sense of desperation, and I do speak as a a white male, so I don't know right. some of the things that my black brothers and sisters go through, although I've been trying to listen and talk to them and get perspective on all this. Um, So desperation without a real vision will lead to chaos. And, uh, you know, without a vision, the people perish. And when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Think of those two passages from Scripture. So you need a counter vision. You need a vision of of liberty and virtue and freedom that will support the rights of ethnic minorities. Uh, You need a positive program, and I think back to the civil rights movement, particularly the the vision and the oratory and the leadership of Martin Luther King. Uh, What we're seeing now is more of the Malcolm X response. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'm making some people angry here, but I have to say it, I think that that uh, Dr. King's approach was constructive and deeply Christian and traded on the founding ideals of the country. You look at his Eye of a Dream speech, he's not saying destroy America, or America is intrinsically racist. He said we need to live up to our founding ideals that all men are created equal. So it's right. going back to the Declaration of Independence, which is really the, the why of America, and the Constitution is more the how of America. But to oversimplify a bit, uh, the vision of Malcolm X was we are going to bring about change by any means necessary. And that phrase is dangerous because if change is not brought about lawfully and wisely, then it could lead to chaos and anarchy. And societies don't typically permit anarchy for long. Usually what happens is authoritarianism. Wow so if the crowds won't control themselves then we bring in the military and even martial law which is a horrible thing to happen to any country
1: yeah and to and to go back to your the scripture that you quoted when the foundations are destroyed what are the righteous to do have you been thinking about responses for you know people in the people regular everyday christians or even the local pastor at the church on the street corner what can the righteous do
2: well in that passage which is psalm three i believe i don't have scripture in front of me here Uh, the force of that psalm is we continue to worship worship god and trust god and, and serve god come what may so Uh, God hasn't changed, the gospel hasn't changed, the uh, place of the Christian, the calling of the Christian hasn't changed to love God and love neighbor, but uh, we need to think through what is constructive protest and what is destructive protest, and then also uh, what follows from the protest, what are meaningful and lasting reforms for this situation. And I, I worry about this kind of nihilism. And I remember uh, back in the days of the counterculture, I'm not quite old enough to have really uh, been a hippie or <laughs> been a draft resistor or anything like that, or a protester of the Vietnam War. But I do remember this figure who was a leader in the counterculture named Abby Hoffman. And Abby Hoffman wrote a book called Revolution for the Hell of It. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing him say on a radio program, when he was asked, well, what happens after the revolution? He said, well, I don't know. I don't care. Right. You Just bring everything down. When you bring everything down without a constructive vision, without a plan, then the situation's going to be worse than when you started. So looking at our situation, I think some good ideas have been put out there. You have uh, Senator Tim Scott who had uh, uh, what I take to be an excellent bill in terms of police using more body cameras and being trained in de-escalation methods and so on. And sadly, his bill was defeated, but it seemed to be on the right track. So I think there needs to be a legal reform and there needs to be personal repentance where repentance is needful. Yes. Now notice I said that carefully because simply having white people take a knee uh, is certainly a visual sign and people may be very sincere about wanting to support and help and encourage their black brothers and sisters, but it has to be a lot more than that. And actually I'm a little suspect of that because um, repentance, you know, there's such a thing as national repentance and standing with your, your nation uh, as a whole. But I think we need to be really careful with a kind of collective white guilt that, that all whites are somehow equally guilty of racism. And that just re- destroys individual responsibility and individual reform. I think everyone, you know, red and yellow, black and white, has to look at their own lives and say, have I treated my neighbor uh, red and yellow, black and white? as a creature made in God's image. Have I mistreated people? Have I indulged racial stereotypes? But simply to take a knee and feel guilty because you're white, I don't find that to be very helpful.
1: And so if you have a revolution and you don't have anything to replace what you're destroying, then you're going mm-hmm. to have an author- authoritarian society.
2: Yeah, indeed. and. <clears throat> We need people, we need some kind of uh, national leader who can rally Americans of all kinds, of all stripes, races, ethnicities, economic classes, if you want to use that term, to a common vision. And I think our greatest president to do that was Abraham Lincoln and it's so absurd even even statues of abraham lincoln have been defaced and destroyed and people are just not doing their homework here how about basic american history basic civics the man who signed the emancipation proclamation Mm -hmm. and so on but uh, we need a a daniel in the white house we need leaders who can rally our country according to the, the greatness that we have not perfection And that's something to pray about. I know I've talked with Oz Guinness, and he, a great social critic. He said that he and his wife pray daily for some kind of a leader like a Lincoln who can look at the divisions and the chaos and fear and somehow uh, put the English language to work according to these lofty ideals that we have. I think of uh, Churchill. Uh, using the English language uh, to inspire and motivate uh, Britain in the war effort. Uh, we don't we don't have anybody like that right now.
1: No, we have no so one to we, cast a vision.
2: And that, no, that's what
1: so. uh, Churchill did so well, is in the face of impossible odds, he cast a vision for the people.
2: Right, right.
1: Um, you know, I am such a de Tocqueville geek, and, you know, I really have been amazed by the, the prophecies that, that have come to pass in the 150 years since he wrote Democracy in America. But he's not the only person that have voiced concerns about relations between blacks and whites. You know, W.E. Du Bois. Um, a black author has has also has echoed these same sentiments. And so what do you think it would take for blacks and the descendants of the white Europeans to live on equal footing here in America? What would be the logical first steps? I know that's a huge question, Mm -hmm. but (laughs) I mean, you could spend like years answering that question. Mm -hmm. But what do you think? I mean, what is something that like the average person You know, listening to this program, what what are some first steps that they can do to to start changing the relations between blacks and whites? Mm
2: -hmm. Something very practical that I've been doing recently, and I want to continue to do that as a white male, is talk to my African-American friends from various perspectives and simply ask them, what do you think about what's going on? What has been your interaction with police? And just listen. Yeah. Just listen to what people have to say. That's a necessary first step. And then I think also do some research of what is the situation nationally with police and with racial minorities And instead of bandying about these draconian slogans like defund the police or abolish the police, we have to say, how can we reform policing? Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't abolish it. It's a fallen world. People will wrongly use force against each other, and we need a structure of law and people in authority who can enforce that law. Now, they're accountable to God. We're all accountable to God. And we're not talking about a police state, but we're talking about policing according to uh, a just standard. And there will be uh, bad apples, and there will be systems also that are, are rigged, that are not fair. But good night. We've come a long way since 1960. Uh, and if you don't think so, just do some research here about the Civil Rights Movement and about the Civil Rights Act and uh, so many legal reforms um, You've got someone like Shelby Steele, who is an African-American writer, uh, who says the reforms that have taken place in the United States have been tremendous. And he's of the age where he knew uh, racial prejudice and he knew systems of oppression when he was growing up. And he says things are very different here Mm -hmm. uh, at this point. So there's been progress, but we need to continue to make progress and not just say, well, tear the whole thing down
1: yeah I mean
2: that's easy to do I think of uh, Roger Scruton the recently deceased British philosopher that I appreciated so much he said he became what he calls a conservative in 1968 when he saw the riots in Paris he said it is so easy to destroy it's a lot harder to preserve what's good and to improve it
1: yes well you know You mentioned earlier Martin Luther King, and one of the things that really grieved him, excuse me, Martin Luther King Jr., um, one of the things that really grieved him was the fact that, as he said, that the most segregated hour in America is 11 o'clock in the morning or 10 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning Mm -hmm. in church. Um, And he was talking about how segregated churches are and I wonder if this is an opportunity for uh, church leaders to reflect on the segregation and that exists within their own congregations. And what, what can church leaders do to, um, to take stock and maybe um, counteract some of the segregation that we see on Sunday mornings?
2: Yes, well, that's a, a difficult question. I think we start with what does the Bible teach? And it teaches that all people are made in God's image and likeness. And the early church thrived where Jew and Gentile and men and women and people of all ethnic backgrounds came together as one in Christ. You see this in Acts 13, the church at Antioch. You had uh, people who were wealthy, people who were not. Um, called Nigar, he was uh, dark-skinned, and they were all one in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. And ideally, <clears throat> a church should look like its neighborhood.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So just demographically, some neighborhoods are mostly Hispanic, some are mostly Caucasian, some are mostly black, but we do drive around in this culture, and neighborhood can extend pretty far. So a church should be welcoming To every person, whoever that is. And the book of James speaks very strongly against favoritism on the basis of wealth, but we shouldn't have favoritism on the basis of anything. Right. And so a poor person who comes in off the street and wants to worship God should be welcomed. Uh, Somebody from an ethnic group you've never even heard of before (laughs) should be welcomed. Christ welcomes people to come to him for new life and to be his disciple, and we should do the same thing, and and we should have some some difficult conversations about the issues out there, Uh, like the issue of systemic racism, white privilege. Uh, What are these? Uh, Do they even exist? What is the actual problem? What can white Christians, black Christians, red Christians, brown Christians, what what can we do mm-hmm. um, to not just get along, but to love one another from the heart, and to be citizens who do something right for the city to which we are exiled. Now, we're in a pandemic, so we can't have a big racial reconciliation conference. Everybody listens to one another and cries and prays and hugs each other and but that doesn't mean we can't do something. And I'll go back to the very concrete thing that I said is if you are a, uh, a white Christian as I am, then listen, talk to people and discuss these issues. And not just African Americans, but, um, first nation people, native Americans, um, and then Alaska, native Alaskans and so on. Um, how have you been treated? How do you think we can improve the situation for um, African-Americans or Native Americans or, or white Americans or, or anyone? How can we follow Christ better?
1: How can we follow Christ better? I think that that is the most, the the kernel of truth and the center truth of all mm-hmm. that you've said. You know, begin by listening, begin by reflection on, you know, the the white privilege and Mm -hmm. what does that mean and have I had privilege and how have I contributed to this type of um, society in this manner Mm -hmm. Um, those are very wise words thank you so much for for joining us again dr. Groteis
2: well you're welcome and I enjoyed it thank you for your good ministry
1: you've been listening to Christian curious with dr. Haley Share your thoughts to me by writing at, to me at drhaley at christiancurious.org. That's d-r-h-a-l-e-e at christiancurious.org. Stay curious.
0: Thank you for listening to Christian Curious with Dr. Haley. You can contact her with your comments or questions about today's show at her email, drhaley at org. That's d r. H-A-L-E-E at ChristianCurious.org You may also learn more by visiting the Christian Curious website ChristianCurious.org Join Dr. Haley again next week for Christian Curious on AM 670 KLTT